kia mau ki te kauraroa. Hold on to the big crayfish. E nā mana, e nā reo, e nā kārangaranga maha, no mai haere mai ki te hōtaka nei a te ahikā. I'm Mariah Rakaraku. And I'm Justin Murray. You're listening to Te Ahikā on Radio New Zealand National. People aren't spending time at the racetrack like they used to, according to Jim Winniata and Teresa Fulford, which is no surprise given the economic situation and focus on gambling prevention. Yet the father and daughter combo are determined that the empty race course at Otaki is filled again with activity. Most race courses are having a hard time financially. How so? Uh, well, I suppose there's too much gambling, like poker machines and all that. I take the revenue away from racing. And most clubs, I will say most clubs, are struggling. Kia ora, Jim Winiata, and he sure knows his stuff. He's coming up later on as two artists, Robin Kahukiwa, in an archival recording from 27 years ago. Icky. And of course, with the final of the Rugby World Cup about to kick off in a few hours, we had to do our part. Designer David Hakaraya is here to talk about his trophies, the ones awarded to players of the match and winging their way to rugby players' trophy cabinets all over the world. And he credits part of his success as a university student. He completed his master's earlier this year to a Māori-focused mentoring programme, Te Ropu Afina. That was also responsible for success in other parts of his life as well. And it's been good. It's helped me work. You know, I've, I've met a lot of good people. I've met my partner for it, so it's been, yeah, it's, it's good. But it's, it's... Stop it. You weren't the tutor and she was the student, no, were no, you? No, no, no. <laughs> no. I used to copy off her. <laughs> <laughs> no. David Hakaraya. And this week we have the sweet sounds of Electric Wire Hustle and Maratike to bring it all together. Koera na whakamahuki e rere atu nei that's what's coming up tonight in Te Ahika. Te Ahika, Radio New Zealand National. Last week, our guests, Tyler Keelan and Maria Barge, were all about mozzies. No, not those kind, but the two-legged Māori variety living in Australia, in some cases for a couple of generations. And while they're a common feature of te ao Māori inaene, the Māori world now, in the early 1980s, it was something of a rarity. Artist Robin Kahukiwa was born in Australia in 1940, returning to Aotearoa when she was 19. Marriage children and a teaching career followed and intermingled with all of that life stuff has been her painting. Despite having no formal artistic training it's highly likely you have seen her art. It's on the walls of many ministerial and academic organisations throughout the country. A few months ago Robin Kahukiwa was awarded Te Tohu Toike, the award for making a difference as part of the annual stable of awards from Creative New Zealand's and because awards always tend to be moments of reflection, we have an archival recording of an interview she did with Kiri Ka in 1984. Kia ora, Robin. Kia ora, Kiri. Uh, very quickly, a rundown. You must be one of the few New, New Zealanders, Maori people born in Australia that I actually had regular contact with. So in fact, while you are Māori, you're actually an Australian by birth. 
Yes, that's right. But I think you'll find a lot more people like that will be meeting you over the next few years because there's great Māori population in Australia and a lot of the children are being born there as well. In, my, in our own family, uh, my husband's brother has four children. Three of them have been born in Australia. Where were you actually born? In Sydney. And where's your taha Māori from? Uh, from the East Coast, uh, Aitanga Ahauiti. Uh, or Tolaga Bay. Tolaga Bay. Tukumaru Bay, Anaura Bay. And your tahamari comes through your mother or your father? Through my mother's side. Uh, and you belong to which whānau, do you know? Uh, yes, the whānau ātau, whānau ārua-taupari. And I believe your tipuna is a quite a well-known identity on the East Coast, the district nurse who many people remember as... Uh, Granny Lockwood. Yes, Granny Lockwood was a very well-known identity on the East Coast. She was a midwife for many, many years, travelling great distances on horseback to deliver babies. And uh, people that have known her and knew of her have said to me that she always wore black. She was a real stickler for cleanliness, that she scrubbed everything until it was absolutely <laughs> snowy, white and germ-free. And... Uh, she, well, she knew a great many people, and um, she was the one who cut the tapes to open the Tolaga Bay Bridge. I'm not quite sure of the year, but I think it was in the 1930s, I think, but I'm not too sure about them. Mm. She lived to a good age. And you were telling me on the way to the studio this morning that you always knew as a child about your, your taha Māori. Mm. Uh, what is the other part of you? <laughs> Well, my mother always told me, right from I can remember when I was small, that I had Māori blood and I was related to Sir Francis Drake. And I have to say that I've found out a lot more about my Māori taha than I don't know anything about the Sir Francis Drake side of it at all, but still. Well, you can go to the nearest <laughs> library and read about your other famous tipuna. Mm. Um, when did you actually come back to New Zealand? To uh, I came back to New Zealand... Uh, about 20 years ago, and uh, I came over because all my relations lived here and I wanted to get to know them, and uh, I just came for a holiday, and but I ended up staying here. Oh, you got married while you were here? Well, not, not during the holiday. <laughs> it wasn't oh. that quick, but I did get married uh, a couple of years later. Tell me about your beginnings in, in the art world. Did you actually go to art school in Australia or...? Now, I've never really had any formal education in art. Uh, I've always drawn and painted since a child, but the school I went to, art was considered to be for those people who weren't uh, very capable at school. Oh, uh, the non-academics. The non-academics. Uh, and uh, I did other subjects, you know, like French and Latin and this sort of thing, but I always did my art at home. And then... When I left school, I got a job as a commercial artist where they preferred to train their people on the job rather than have them from Polytech. So I was very lucky in that way. I got training in techniques and um, how to use brushes and pencils and whatnot through that. Was that very disciplined sort of work? Very disciplined, yes. And in fact, I had when I began to paint, which was about 14 years ago, I really had to unlearn, if you could say that, if that's such a word, unlearn a lot of the... Um, discipline so that I could free up for painting. It was a whole new ball game, and I found it very, very hard to compose a picture, a whole picture. 
When when you worked for these commercial art people, um, did you have to design, say, labels for tins or anything? Yes, that's what, right. What, what, what was your first bit that you did? The first bit I ever did was a horse, because that was <laughs> dear to my heart, because oh, I've always loved horses. Yeah. I did a horse with a rug on, and it was a tiny little drawing, just in black and white in line, and it took me about three weeks, <laughs> because I, they were so... Um, meticulous about the line that you got and everything. They were very good teachers because um, they expected you to get everything perfect. And the other thing that you had to do a lot of was retouching of type faces. So you'd get a proof from a typesetter and you'd have to retouch all the lettering where the ink hadn't taken. And that's very disciplined work. Exacting work. work. Exacting work. Mm. And what inspired you to begin on the path you seem to have set for yourself here? in New Zealand. What got you started? Well, um, when I got married, I, I took on a little bit of uh, freelance commercial artwork to start with, and we were living in Rotorua then, and um, that was okay, but then my husband was transferred to Greymouth, and when I got down there, I found that there was very little commercial artwork in the offing. And the other thing was that, of course, being strange to the place, and I had two young children, that I was sort of stuck at home all the time, and I thought, well, I'll go down to one of the night classes, um, which was being run at that time by Yvonne Rust, the well-known mm -hmm. potter, and she was the high school teacher at Greymouth High uh, uh, for art. And so I went down to this night class, and um, that was it. As soon as I started painting, I knew that this is what I should have been doing all the time, although you don't know in your life certain things perhaps prepare you for it, you know, uh, but anyway, as soon as I started painting, that was it. You were beginning to make quite a name for yourself. Uh, you, though you might not think so. But people are, are sitting up and taking notice of your work because you've illustrated uh, quite a number of children's storybooks and uh, you seem to have set up in tandem with Patricia Grace. Um, is, is that... A sort of partnership be formed because you live near each other? Or was that just the way things have happened for you? Well, it was actually a matter of luck and fate, I think, more than, mm. more than the way that we didn't arrange it because, in fact, I, I didn't really know Patricia before I illustrated Te Kuiya Mete Punga Wiriwiri. And I was approached by uh, the group of people who actually did the book, Kidzaris too to see if I'd be interested in, in doing uh, illustrating of a book, and I'd never, ever thought of it. But I thought, when I read the story, I was delighted with it, and uh, I said to them, yes, I would have a go, and um, the first illustration I did was absolutely hopeless, but they must have seen something in it because they asked me to do another one um, with a bit of guidance as to how, because it's a whole different thing from painting again, you know. And so um, I did the second illustration, and I was given the commission on strength of that. And um, then, of course, I, well, I already knew that Patricia lived close by, and so I contacted her because I felt it was very important for the illustrator to be in uh, constant uh, communication with the author, which, to my surprise, I found out since very rarely happens. But anyway, in this case, we were very lucky to be living close by, and uh, our friendship has developed from that. Yes, because you are a really a mutual support group. Oh, I've, I've counted myself very lucky to have met Pat, and uh, I get I get a lot of stimulation and creative 
idea from just talking to her. And I came across uh, a little book that you illustrated called Ihaka and the Summer Wandering. Wandering. Yes. And I also found a book you'd, a story you'd illustrated for Joy Cowley and June Melser's uh, was it Ready to Read series? Yes, yeah, Storybox series. Uh, there was the story of Hatupatu. Yes. And I, think, I thought your, your drawing of the bird woman was just amazing because I had never visualised her um, as looking like that. And uh, Well, at first I was a bit startled by her. I, I thought she really was rather... Um, she wasn't exactly scary. Um, where did you get your idea... Uh, for that particular drawing, because you know you've drawn her, she's got this chocolatey brown body and these sort of, there are touches of a very sharp green. Uh, it's funny you should say about visualising with the bird woman because I had uh, previously to, to getting that uh, commission, I had already done a, uh, a painting which was the first legend I have, had ever done of Hatupatu and Kurungatuku, and she was completely different in that. She was much more um, a womanly figure, and she had a woman's face and a bird's body, woman's legs. Um, but when I got the children's book and I read Joy Cowley's text, well, I think the um, the idea came from that because she does describe her quite graphically in the text. The colouring, oh, okay, I can't say where it came from. It just seemed to fall into place, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know. Have you got any more children's books underway for illustration? Well, at the moment I'm just about finished Patricia's second children's book, uh, which is called Watercress Tuna and the Children of Champion Street, and that should be out uh, at the end of this year. Uh, and then I've um, written a story which I'm going to illustrate myself, and that's the next one on the... Uh, oh, the Tanifa. What do you think about the, the book that's finally been produced? Are you pleased? With the end result? Yes, I'm very pleased with it. I think um, it's, it's a beautifully designed book, and I might say that I didn't design it. It was designed by um, Misson and Geard, of, um, a designing firm here in Wellington, and Mark Geard did the designing, and I think it's absolutely beautiful the way he's put the book together. And, um, you know, the reproductions of the work are excellent. They went to a lot of trouble to get the colour and... Uh, in the black and white ones, the pencil drawings, they proved very difficult to reproduce um, to get because I use such a range of pencils. My drawings aren't always done with the same pencils. I go from 6H to 6B, and it's very, very hard to reproduce those um, contrasted tones. But I'm mm. very, very pleased with them. I think I've come out very well. The only thing that, that perhaps hasn't come up the best uh, um, uh, is the um, enlargement and of the um, paintings, the detail of the paintings, which unfortunately um, have caught a little bit of shine on the surface. But, um, oh, well, there's always something, but on the whole, I'm, I'm really delighted with the book. Your exhibition itself has caused a lot of comments within the Māori community. Um, how did you feel about it? Were you pleased with, with what uh, went up on the walls of the gallery? Um, that's a hard thing to ask somebody. I, what I was pleased with was the fact that for the first time since I'd been painting, I was able to do a body of work which which was on a theme, do the whole body of work and finish it. Now that to me was a great satisfaction because 
Even though I've been painting for 14 years, I've been teaching full-time at high school, Mana College. And it was only through the fact that I got a grant from MASPAC that I was able to have a year off in which to do this work. As for the actual results, well, I'd like to do it all again now and, and I'll approach it a different way because there's so many different facets to something like that. And I feel that I've only just perhaps, you know, touched the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, because you could do it so many different ways. But that was my first uh, reaction to doing to doing something like this. Um, but it has set a path for me, on, uh, you know, right through my painting life now. I will be doing mythology in some way or another because it's fascinating to me. Do when you when you do your drawings or your paintings or plan a piece on on your sheet of drawing paper, uh, do you actually organise it all in your head first, or do you have visions? In other ways, some artists have dreams and they can just sort of get up and just put it down. No. Do you work like that? No, not really. I I don't think I've ever had a complete picture in my head before I've started. In fact. There's a lot of it's a lot of donkey work, a lot of hard work for me to actually get to the final picture. But I do, I get my inspirations from lots of different sources. Um, for instance, I'll get an inspiration from something somebody says, or from just from somebody's face that I've seen. Well, in this case, of course, I already had the inspiration of of the myth. But how to actually do it? Because one of the most difficult ones was for me was Tipor, because it's just such an abstract idea and. I'm not an abstract artist. My my work mm-hmm. represents reality, I I think. And uh, but I found that a real challenge. Um, and when I come to actually work, I do a lot of drawing before I do the painting. I've got I've got to work very hard at the drawing because I'm very concerned with the um, composition of the work before I start painting. When when you're at work, do you play music or? Do you like to work in total silence? No, I, I like music. I think that's probably having um, began, begun to paint with my children were small, and, of course, they've always been around, so there's always been a lot of noise. Um, when I began painting, I've always sort of had to use, you know, any area that I could find and, and um, in the house. So I've never been able to get away on my own until three years ago when we bought a house where I've got a part that I can get on my own. But... Um, the noise factor to me. I, I very, very seldom paint in silence. I usually have music or, um, at the moment, I'm learning Māori through correspondence. I have tapes on um, or I have the radio on. I have something going. Kia ora, Robin Kahukiwa no Ngāti Parau, Te Aitanga Hauitse, Ngāti Hau, Ngāti Konohi and Te Whānau Arua Taupare. The interview was sourced from our archives and is from 1984. Ngāti Poro Kiri was the interviewer. 21 years on, and Robin Kahuki was recognised by Ngā Taonga Toi Atiwaka Toi Creative New Zealand for her contribution to Māori arts with Te Tohu Toike. Ngā mihi kia koe e koe. A longer version is at our website radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. You're listening to the sound of teahika with Justine Murray and Mariah Rakuraku. She a boy taina.
Now that's a familiar sound for you. Neha Justine. Sure is. Saturday mornings, great in race course, that's in Tauranga. Lots and lots of tickets on the grass, smell of hot chips and a long, long day for us kids. Mum and Dad hardly went out, but when they did, it was to the races. Handy because we lived right <laughs> next door to one. And unlike today where there are numerous ways to get your gamble on, like online poker, lotto, scratchy cards, back then there was nothing like a flutter on the GGs. And... In a way, a day at the races evened out class as working classes mixed in with the other classes, even if there were restrictions on members and non-members, movements within a race course. Which wasn't a problem for Jim Waniata, who for the past 30 years has been a patron of the Ōtaki race course. And it's over that time that Jim Waniata has watched patronage drop off. Justine met Jim and his caretaker daughter, Teresa Fulford, who are looking at ways of revamping the complex and making it appeal to another generation of racegoers. As far as the racing club goes, I suppose I've been interested with the racing club since I was 17. 17. I used to work on this course. When Were I you a s- jockey? No, no, no. I used to work on the course itself when I was 17 here. And then my father was the... Uh, Secretary then, nephew Winniata, he was a secretary. And I left, after I got married when I was 19, I left here and got a job outside. In the 1950s, I was working on, on the farm at Tehoro, where we owned stock and cows and milking cows, and a couple of the old stewards, I'll name them, Hema uh, Hakarai and uh, Dick Rory came down to, and when I was milking in the morning and, I, and of course he had to go across the creek and they couldn't get to me so they were yelling out to me and uh, <clears throat> I went across and they said, I said, what's the matter? They said, boy, sign this paper. Now that's the way they spoke to me, boy, sign this paper. I said, what for? They said, well, become a steward. I said, no, I know nothing about racing. They said, just sign it. Okay. They said, now come to the annual general meeting. I said, yeah, okay. So I I went to the meeting. I'd been a member since I was 21. And uh, I went to the meeting, and my father was secretary. And during the meeting, one of my own cousins got up and said there were too many Winniartas on the the racing club, and that I should withdraw my name. Too many Winniartas so that it was biased? The old people then, one, one particular person was Tenger Baker. He got up and he slated this person who got up and said, who are you to tell us people who to select on this committee? And I was 30 then when I was, I would be the youngest steward going, I would think, and I flew in and I've been in ever since. And I've had, I suppose, 50 odd years or more in here and I'm still on the committee. <laughs> what was the role of a steward? They ran the whole race day. They were in charge of it, put it that way. All the, all the, um, from the acceptances right through to the end of the race day. So, and what's an acceptance? What acceptances are for the horses that come into the racing. They they nominate their horses and then they accept them. And in the old days, we used to do the barrier draws. You know, at the start. At the start of the meeting, they all got every horse got a different barrier draw, and we used to do that. But now it's all done in Wellington. Mm. So that was so that was uh, yeah. Then they started to 
do the course up. Make a new course here. Right. And that was in the 1960s, I think it was. Somewhere in the 60s. And a lot of them, a lot of the stewards weren't, uh, they weren't happy about it. They wanted a new stand. But the older ones prevailed in those times, the older, older stewards, they prevailed and made the new course. And I think going back now, they'd done the right, that was the right decision. Do the buildings later. Put the course in, in, in perfect condition, which it is, still is. One of the best courses on the coast. And, uh, and, that's, and I was here then when they started to do the track. When it was finished, they had a very, very big meeting about putting these new stands up. The old stands, they were, and they were old. And they were old. <laughs> what were they made of at wooden, that time? Wooden, wooden stands. <clears throat> and there was a lot of dissatisfaction with some of the stews of putting these stands up. But good, good thinking prevailed, and they put these stands up. Um, that was in the ooh, 60s, 68, Therese, would it be? So we have Teresa, uh, Jim's daughter, with us. Mm. Mm. This stand here in the pub, the public stand was a bit later than that, Dad. A bit later than the 60s. Yeah, yes, yes. We didn't. Oh, a lot, that's right. A lot later, that's right. Dad. That's we right. came here in 1980. That's right. <laughs> so that's right. it was a lot later than that. I'd say it's in the late. I can't. I can't quite. Off, honestly, offhand, I can't remember uh, the year. It would have been in the 80s or early 90s. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Because the, the member stand was built in about 78, 76, 78. Yeah. It was two years before we actually arrived on the place, before we took over the job of uh, race course managers. Mm. Mm. Going back, you know, this, I've seen the changes on this race course, mm. big changes. As people know, or would it's well known now that most race courses are having a hard time financially. How so? Uh, well, I suppose there's too much gambling, like poker machines and all that. They take the revenue away from racing. And most clubs, I will say most clubs, are struggling financially. And that, that includes big clubs. We are one of... The, one in this area, the only ones that are above our budget all every race meeting, which is a good sign, really. So you're still in the um, black, yeah. so to speak, financially. Financially, financially. Uh, see, we are with uh, race under the race now. Race sort of manages us, and they are a sort of consortium. There's um, four, there's Wellington. Trentham, are you talking Trentham, about? Trentham, Otaki. Manawatu, um, Martin, Fielding, they're all in race. And they're in race are the hub of the working. Could you understand me? Yes, yeah. So you're like a, they, you're are, they are the top, they are the boss, the top people in the racing in our area. Because uh, is, is New Zealand split up into regions, Jim? Like you have yeah, there's there's a northern the, regions, yeah, right. southern this yeah. So is that what you're talk, kind of talking about? The Wellington region? Is this is the Wellington region, yeah. yeah. And that we're under race, which is managed by a different one from each club. 
we are we are finding it very hard financially. It's how can I put it? It's it's a sad thing to see how this club has slipped back in the not the running of it, the running of it is perfect. It's just something that we are missing and I can't put my finger on it, what it is. That that we are not going ahead fast enough. This is my own opinion, that we're not going ahead fast enough that there's something missing and I don't know what it is in here, whether it's, uh, I shouldn't say it, but perhaps too much European side coming into it, I don't know. I don't know. It might be too much Maori coming into it. What do you mean, Jim? Do you mean why Everything. is the club? Like you touched on pokies earlier. Like yeah. People are gambling yeah. and they can gamble from the comforts of their own home on their laptop, That's on right. their computer, That's right. place a bet from home. That's right. So are you talking about the club's not changing to meet their expectation? Yeah. That's, what I'm, that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. You know, I, I, I just can't put a finger on it, what, what is happening. And I, and I feel very sad about it because after seeing the the, the, the big stuff, and now it's coming down to, to dribbles, you know. Tell me about the old days when racing was at its peak. Going back, going back, this this place used to be, they used to have trains from Wellington, our race days. And people used to walk through from the railway through the gardens here onto the race course. That's going back a few years ago. I was only a teenager then. <laughs> but I can remember the crowds coming in here, big crowds. And this race course was divided into outside, an outside stand and an inside stand. Inside stand, yeah, okay. Inside lawn, like. An outside lawn. The sheep were on the outside and I was in the inside. And they had a fence along the, they cut the place in half what they call a lawn on the outside. Wow. And quite a few races, courses had that in the old days. But, it, but they used to get huge crowds. Huge crowds they used to get here. And now it's just, we'd be lucky to get a thousand people here. But was the light, there's the light at the end of the tunnel. And we think we'll get there. And you would have seen... The mass crowds slowly, obviously... Dwindle, slowly dwindle down, yeah. We have one day a year which we get a big crowd. What day is that? That's our main, our big day, our 4th of January, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, we enjoy it. Of course. We enjoy it. And really speaking, the stewards, they're related. It's like a family club, this is. So speaking of whānau and speaking of family... Um, how have you um, nurtured your Teresa here in, in racing? Have you always been immersed in, in, in the racing culture? I haven't been, no. <laughs> <laughs> but your husband was the caretaker. Yes, yeah. he was the manager. Manager, yeah. sorry. Course manager, yes. He, um, Dad rang up, we were share milking in Martangi, and Dad rang and asked if we need wanted the job. And um, we discussed it and I said to Harold, well, why not? He said, yeah, five years. We'll give ourselves five years. Thirty years later, we're still here. <laughs> <laughs> but in that time, we have a son who now runs Auckland. He did an apprenticeship with the Otaki Māori Racing Club. And now he runs Auckland. Um, our other son was a steward. 
Um, and our daughter rides on the track, but previously I had had nothing and I wasn't interested in horses. So, I mean, all come from father. So, so growing up in the household, you'd said no? No. Dad went to the races. He was interested, but we, we were never. <laughs> we used to hang around the bottom of the stair. I remember coming to the races once and we were hanging around the bottom of the steps, yelling out to Dad for money. Well, we, you can imagine what we were told. <laughs> I don't think he took us again. <laughs> They're going back a few years, yeah. But other than that, no, I had no interest. And I still don't bet horses. I don't punt. What? Yes, you don't bet. I don't punt. So, so day-to-day operations, it really takes a caretaker and maybe a couple of other people in yes. terms of employees of, the, of this club. Yes, yes, it does, yeah, to keep it running smoothly. <coughs> um, most, I mean, like days like today, we do inside work. We catch up on all that. <gasps> mm. You're eight, 80 years old, are you? 80? 85. Eight, ooh, 85. <laughs> 85 years old. You are the patron patron yeah. of the Otaki Māori Racing Club. I've been patron for 30-odd years. 30-odd years. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you think your role is in all this as patron? Just a figurehead. Just a figurehead. But they all come to me for information, you know. A lot of, a lot of my, uh, our young students, they know nothing about what's happened, what was here before. And and uh, one or two of them asked me, you know, what I said, yeah, would you tell us? I said, yeah, come and talk to me. I said, I'll tell you. Because I said, pretty near live on the racecourse over here. I had a, there was a batch over here and I used to live in. Oh, right. Yeah. Justin Murray, Radio New Zealand National, and he, I'm here with uh, the patron of the Otaki Māori Racing Club, Jim Muniata, and his daughter, uh, Teresa Fulford. Um, thank you so much for your court at all. Well, should we take a little tour? Yeah. Just a little small yeah. little walk? Okay, so <laughs> grab my machine. Women weren't allowed on the committee or in the steward room for years. They weren't, were they, Dad? Oh, no. And they were out there. This is the men's area in here, in the steward's room. It wasn't until the mid-80s, 1980s? That the mid-1980s? Oh. It was through me that the women got in there. Why were they banned in the... F- oh, because that was a men's... They reckon it was a men's place in the, in the steward's room. Oh, and you should have heard some of them. When Did they, they think women were tapu? No, no, no. They think, no, the women... That wasn't a place for women in our steward's room. And I had a big argument in the, in the committee room. I said, if owners, packy women owners can come in our room, why can't our wives go in there? There was a pretty big upheaval over it, and they passed it, and uh, I was the first to take my wife in, eh? And they shunned her a bit, some of the stewards, and I went crooked, eh? If she's as much right in here as you fellas, you know? Yes. And from then on, it started. Mm-hmm. My, one of my uncles, and I'm not going to say who it was, <laughs> said a woman's place was in the kitchen and if a chicken squawks, you cut its throat head off. <laughs> we won't say who it we is. We won't say, we won't. Jota, uncle. <laughs> yeah. And that is so true. He said that oh, outside yeah. the steward's room. <clears throat> Were stewards considered the kingpin of racing? They were the top boss. Yeah. yeah. They were the top boss. And, uh, it's, a, it's a man's world. Was, not now. 
Well, no, we've got a lot of trainers, and but it's still a man's world. We've still got women trainers and and women more involved in it, but um, it's still that. It's boys' can, club. Yeah, feel. it's still that feel there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah is that well? I think it always will. It always will. <clears throat> we have had a woman steward in Wellington, and by crikey, that was an upheaval in Wellington, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Because we and then we got woman stewards here. We didn't think it would ever happen, but of course it did. So people would just pack into this room, Jim, and make their bets, have a drink. This is down here, that end. This yeah. is this is the um, they have this is a restaurant end. This end. Restaurant. Yeah, they put tables in here. So you do here. food yeah. and hot yeah. chips and yeah. yeah, all in here. And this is where they have their their dinners in here. You know, when they when they have a big do here. Oh, okay. They have dinners in here. Yes. <coughs> The, um, the club puts on a, once a year for the members a breakfast. All members are free. Oh, thank you, Jim. <coughs> so right this now, is our kitchen, and and uh, we got a license for it to be a what do you call it? A restaurant. Restaurant to run a restaurant in here, and it's pretty well, pretty well up to date kitchen in here. How are the young people interested? I think. What did you say, Teresa? It's, a, it's hard getting our young people yeah. interested in it, and I think that could be the, some of the problem too, the interest in racing itself, you know, to come here and put time in. and It's just, I guess we're all too busy with our own sort of interests now. So we're in the racing club and we're just making our way up a couple of flights of stairs. Oops. The apartment. Oh, this is lovely. Again, it's huge. It is huge. Wow, it's been a while since I've been to a racing club, but this is huge. <laughs> and as you can see, our tracks from out there, they're the ones that, the course proper is the one that they, we have spent a lot of time on. And the course yeah. proper is? The one that they race on. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. That's where you see that red rail? Yes. Right. Well, the rail is in nine metres from the original position because we shift the running rail during the winter after each meeting, race. Yeah. So they've got to clean a good bit of grass to race on each um, time. And that patch of grass is called a proper rail? Oh, race course proper. Sorry. Course proper. All these yeah. technical terms. The next, the next one in the white, other white rail yeah. is the number one, which is for gallops. And then we've got a couple of sand tracks and a hurdle and a two-year-old. So it takes quite a bit to keep them all up, up to the standard that is expected. Yes, it's sad. Uh... And who calls the races? Uh, Tony Lee. Tony Lee. Tony Lee, yeah. He calls them here. <coughs> have you ever done that, Jim? <laughs> Wouldn't have a clue. I would <laughs> keep it the way they would chatter along. <laughs> yes. What are your fondest memories... Are you in, 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 in racing? Like, you're a punter? Up to a point. Up to a point. I used to have a horse. Oh, I had two or three horses, but I had one. one. We did all right, Alan. Yeah. And you but, ride, do you ride horses? I mean, back in your earlier days, did you ride horses? Yes, I used, you wouldn't believe it, but I used to ride track work on this track. <laughs> wow. Track work, that's training horses of the morning. Oh. That's going back before this. The old course we went around there. See that inside fence? Mm -hmm. That's where the old course sort of went. So we're looking about a mm. good 100 metres out in front of us. <clears throat> right. Yeah, I used to ride tackle here because my uncle used to train horses. 
Yeah, and I used to ride track work. You wouldn't think so, would you? Oh, <laughs> you're still sprightly at 85, Jim. Yeah. So. Oh. This is the tunnel. <laughs> Feels like when you've bought a flight and you walk through that, that doorway. This is the members' room. This is the members' stand. This members wow. only. Members only. Yes. Oh, so what's these little yellow doors? Pardon? What are those doors there, Jim? There? Yeah. That's a tote. Bedding windows. Bedding windows. This is a steward where women were not allowed to come in here. Right <coughs> up until the mid 1980s, yeah. and then they were. This here is our, this is what I call a cup. Tell us about this cup, then, Jim. That cup was found in Auckland. Under a house in Auckland, a chap was renovating this house, and he found that cup, and he sent it back to us, and we got it cleaned up and done it, and that's it there. Oh my gosh, he was bought in a house and he found it. Yeah, in Auckland. How did it? Oh, so do we know how he got there? Don't know. Right. Nobody knows how it got there. Yeah, that's the cup. Very fine carving on that. Very fine carving. That's what they call the Rokoa cup. That. The Rokoa cup. Yep. Must have been a special day when it was returned to the club. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Took a while to get it cleaned up. It was covered in dust and muck and... Any idea of its date? No. No, no. no. And Whoa. those were there. That was a... Come from there. That. And that's the Ben Ling Memorial up there. That chapter we got land from. That's his memorial... What's that? Plague. Ben Ling. No. Yeah. So, um, Teresa, as the caretaker of the Ōtaki Māori Racing Club, you know, what, what was your five-year five wish or your future projections for, for this club and your, your hopes and aspirations? Well, I'd love to see it um, used more often than what it is. Um, in five years, I'm hoping it's turned around again and be, back to where it was in the eight, early 80s where it was roaring, you know, um, I don't know what we can do to to um, cause that to happen, but that's what I'd like to see happen. Mm. Hmm. And for more of our young people to become interested in not so much the racing, but the history, this place, to, to help to take it forward. Mm. Mm. We need our young people to be more involved. Well, I'd like to see this club keep up its name on the racing programme uh, they have a pretty good name now at the present time for the racing fraternity. Mm, they, do. they have a good name, and I hope this club can keep that name up going all the way through. And that name is? The Otaki Māori Racing Club. <laughs> there you go, it's a great way to end it. <laughs> <laughs> Kia ora, Jim the patron of the Otaki Māori Racing Club, and his daughter, Teresa Fulford, who works as a caretaker. There is a really interesting backstory to racing, Māori racing in particular. We've posted up some links at our page, radionz.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Mariah Rakaraku, and this is Te Ahika.
few hours, the All Blacks will meet France in a game that will decide who are the 2011 Rugby World Cup champions. Woohoo! So far, 47 players have been named Man of the Match. If you've watched the TV coverage, the ceremony takes place after the interviews with captains and coaches. And while it seems slightly staged with awkward handshakes and murmured thanks, each player has received a trophy made by this man. David Hakaraya, who graduated from Victoria University earlier this year with a Master's in Design. Flash, all right. And he credits a mentoring program as a significant part of his success to date. So tell me about your involvement with Te Ropu Afina. I, I guess um, Te Ropu Afina is a sort of like a whānau-based um, um, mentoring system within the university. Like I've been involved with it for 11 years First, there's a mentee, and then there's a mentor, and it's been good, like that final environment, because it's it's quite um, within the university, you know, in design, it, people work sort of um, isolated as individuals, so it's good. So this is also a, um, a mentoring program that's structured throughout the university, eh? Because it goes through science. Yeah, it's going through the sciences yeah. and 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 um, the architecture and design, which comes under the science umbrella. It, it's it's yeah, uh, it's not really looked upon as a Service, it's more more fun, and it's been good. It's helped me with you know, I've, I've met a lot of good people, I've met my partner for it, so it's been yeah, it's, it's good. But it's, it's stop it, you weren't the tutor, and she was the student, no, were no, you? No, no, no. <laughs> no. I used to copy off her, <laughs> no. yeah, but it, it, it's, it's been good. Like, um, I think now that I've gone through the process, it's good for the younger guys to see what I'm doing, and you know, um, because I think not a lot, not. A lot of Maori and Pacific kids see architecture and design as a as a um, as, as an a, option, as optional mm. career, and, and we're getting more and more. So it's it's been it's been quite cool. Um, and I'm guessing for some students, say eh, David, that it'd be the first time many of them had have hooked into anything Maori. Yeah, yeah, uh, yep, yeah, for sure. And it, it's slowly changing the, the demographic um, uh, in the university because when I first started. It was maybe I could count all the Maori, skinny. Maori mm. Pacific on one hand, or you know. But now it's sort of it's it's all them damn kura kids coming yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's some talented <laughs> guys out there, yeah. eh? Some real talented guys. There's kura kids yeah, who yeah, yeah. think, yeah, who are yes, the world's my oyster. I'm yeah, gonna grab it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it's it's been um, yeah, it's cool, and, and I'm happy to be involved and try and inspire some of the younger talent out there. Maybe, hopefully. <laughs> all right, now you didn't do this design alone. You no. were in collaboration with Rangi Kippa? Well, Rangi, yeah, it was, um, me and Rangi have worked together um, and he's sort of been my mentor while I did my Masters. Um, you know, I interviewed him for my Masters uh, along with um, Lionel Grant, Lisa Rehana and Karen Wilson who are sort of top artists, designers, carvers. And so I learned quite a lot and we got on quite well. And so he's sort of been my mentor um, since I've been talking to him. And he came up with the, the, the shape for the tuki. Um, I came up the uh, the base and the bases um, sort of represents the Fenua and each each base is, is slightly different. Um, each base is uh, the topography of the area where they're playing. So uh, this one here is uh, Eden Park, and it's uh, taken from Google Maps. And then it's got the latitude longitude coordinates of the stadium itself. So what we're looking at is the prototype of the design of the Man of the Match trophies right. that go to players at the end of each Rugby World Cup game. So right. how many did you have to make? I had to make 
there's 48 games, but I had to make 53 for Mastercard. A couple was so they could do photo shoots and stuff. But yeah. there were 48 games, so you, so I so there were 48 trophies. Yeah. I made, be... I made, well, I made 53. There were um, 48 for the games and three left over for whatever they were going to use it for. Um, so, yeah, the base, as I said, was is the topography of the area taken from Google Maps, and it's made out of, out of Hartrimu, so native timber of New Zealand. Um, then it has the sort of the po coming out of it with the um, Mangopare design representing strength. So, too, if I was to describe it, it's... And I don't want to um, rain on your parade here, but I'm just doing it from a layperson perspective. Yep. So it's a, a slab of wood. <laughs> yep, yep. It's um, probably the size of, could be the size of maybe a hand. Yep. Yeah, enough for you to hold in your hold in your fist. Mm. And inserted in it on an angle is a slab of... Acrylic. And upon that acrylic is a carved mangopare design. Right. And what this is, this is the real beautiful part of it, is that there is a ponamu mm. that rests upon that, and it is beautiful and mm. huge. And so it rests upon it with the idea, eh, that they can take it off and wear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's got the, it's got also got the final touch, which is the ribbon. Um, which has the Mastercard colours who sponsored it. Yeah, it's it's, it's a lovely piece. Um, well, real, real simple um, and practical. Yeah, and it's something that they can take away with them. That's from New Zealand, so uh, native timber and ponamu we you wouldn't get anywhere else in the world. Uh, so it's taking a bit of our land and a bit of our culture away with them. So, Dave Hakaraya, I see that um, unlike the Webellus Trophy, that has to be engraved as yeah, soon yeah. as the match is over. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because you don't know who the men of the match are going to be until yeah. the actual end of the match, eh? Yeah, yeah. So these are just presented to them. Yeah, I was hoping that uh, we could put the names on after it. That way it could be at every game for free. Mm. <laughs> 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 <No>. <laughs> but that didn't happen, so yeah. No, it's, it's, it's been an exciting um, tournament. I've been able to watch a few... Um, few matches that, that uh, Mastercard have given me and then the rest of um paid for myself or sorry my sister <laughs> paid for and I just tagged along yeah so it's been good here it's been yeah so I'm, I'm off to the finals today so it's yeah it's been oh, awesome. how fantastic and have you been getting into the spirit of it oh yeah painting yeah. your face well no I, no I haven't painted my face but I'm thinking for the last one I will um yeah and have you been all blacks all the way? Yeah, all blacks all the way. Hey? Oh, you haven't but, been supporting any of the other well, actually, teams. I, yeah, I've been, it's been like Tonga. I've watched Tonga, watched their matches, and oh yeah, they had some awesome games. And then watched the a couple of the. Oh, my partner, she's um part Fijian, so we watched the Fijian games. And um, yeah, I'm pulling sad face at yeah, the moment. They got smoked. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, now it's been awesome. Uh, like uh, it's the games. They've been quite close, eh? It's been hard to pick them. Um, yeah, as long as we beat the French, I'll be happy. Yeah. So how have you managed to fit in all of you know your rugby watching as well as with all the other design work that you're doing? It's been full on the last... Well, this whole year it's been, been busy. Like, I finished my Masters at the start of this year and then I um, started doing stuff for the Rugby World Cup and and working on a couple of exhibitions, uh, one that's just recently finished yesterday, um, and and just working with Aarangi Kippa on a few other projects. So, 
yeah, it's it's been a quite a busy year, uh, quite full on. But it's it's opportunities that I've, I haven't had before, so I'm trying to trying to grab as many as I can. I mean, this is a pretty awesome gig here, yeah. scoring the, yeah. getting to make the man of the match yeah, trophies. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a, it's an honour to be able to to do something, and and you know, if we win, then I'll go down as the <laughs> guy who designed them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Some of my master's work is inside the piece, so it was quite easy for me to make up a presentation and send it off, and, and they they liked the idea. And so from start to finish, it was, it was quite a long time because it was I had to go through so many channels, um, you know, all the middlemen and um, and then Mastercard and then Mastercard overseas. And so, how was it explaining Māori concepts in Fakaro to um, a mainstream audience? I think um, uh, it was a, uh, a little bit hard because um, there was things that they wanted um, that for the time and, and, and the money w- wasn't really realistic, but mm. we, we came to a compromise and, and it was just sort of working through the process and sending them, um, uh, you know, development sketches or development um, uh, prototypes and just going from there. So it was, it was a bit of, bit of work... And a good learning experience for me, um, but as I said, it was good to have uh, Harangi on board because you know he's because as a senior artist, he's yeah. used to interacting in those yeah, kind of yeah, environments. Yeah. Eh? Yeah, yeah. So, it was, so it'd be good. good guidance. So yeah, I learned quite a lot out of it. Um, yeah. So Were there any frustrations? Um, yeah, there's always frustrations, but mm. um, yeah, it was just you know getting things finished on time and and um, yeah trying to do them at the best of my ability and yeah it was, it was for long because as I said I was you know working at the same time and then doing other um, other projects so I was trying to fit it all in so it was, it's been a mad three months but yeah I'm, I'm happy with it yeah now as a layperson design yeah seems to be you know the high end of art yeah so you have, so if I was to look at furniture, you know, you have these Scandinavian designs that are worth gazillions of dollars and, mm. you know, all of that. And when you think of, if I was to think of Māori design, like straight away my mind would go to, okay, what's in the whare nui, mm. everything like that. But this this is much more, yeah. isn't it? Oh, I don't know if it's much more, but it's just different. It's the way I do it. I mean, I'm not a carver, I'm, you know. You know, I'm not a weaver. I don't do tamako, so it's it's just my way to tell my stories. So it's using, you know, my set of skills, which is you know engineering, um, and then mixing it with digital technologies that we have, um, uh, laser cutters, CNC machines, and 3D printing. So, and they they have that all at, at Vic University. Um, so, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be doing my masters there and doing a bit of uh, teaching there. So. Um, they've given me access, so it's it's been yeah, it's been quite cool. So would we, would this work have been possible without without computers and computer programs? Um, it would have been, but it would have taken a lot longer. Sure. So I mean, you're you're a new, are you a new breed? Are, are you the flash new Māori designers that are coming um, through now, David? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. It's just the way <laughs> it's just the way I do it. I, um, like I, I try to mix craft with digital technology um but in saying that i i, I try not to be uh, yeah because there's lots of little touristic design out there that are quite cheap laser cut stuff and I, it's i think in some cases it's the 
technology driving the person. It should be the person driving that technology. So, yeah, as I said, it's 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 just the way. It, you know, I'm not sure whether it's the right way or the wrong way, but it's just my way. Um, yeah, no, I've got a lot to learn, and I have I've, I've learned a lot, um, especially from uh, Rangi. So, yeah, we'll just see where it takes me, and you know, I'll, I'll take all the opportunities I can. And up to you, those trophies are going to be in the world's most famous rugby players' yeah. trophy cabinets. Yeah, it's awesome. And all they're wearing their tonga around their neck. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty sick. It didn't really hit me for a while away until... Um, you saw the first one? Yeah, until, until I did the first one, because it was, it was just like, because um, I've been so busy, it was just trying to get the work done, and um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stoked. Yeah, it's awesome. Kia ora, David Hakaraya no Ngāpuhi Ngāti Paua. We have photos of the trophy at our web page, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. And believe me, they're stunning. Here he is again with this week's Whakatauki. Kia mou, ki te kaura oroa. Hold on to the big crayfish. Do not waste your efforts to gain small returns, but rather aim for worthwhile results. Yeah, I, I, I can. I guess for me, it's it, this fucker means you know these little gains. You know, always working on my prototypes until you get your final piece, and, and that final piece is the big crayfish that you hold on to. Ko rakumangmanga te munga, ko ipipiri te moana, ko natuki matafurua te waka. Ko natikuta me patikia na hapu, ko terapiti marae, ko napu iti iwi, ko urungu toku papa, ko Michelle toku mama, ko David Hakaraya toku ingoa. Aye, kia ora no. Next week, I report back on the impact of the Rena beaching on my peeps at Tauranga Moana. While I'm with Heather Te O Skipworth, co-creator of Iron Mavi, the Māori version of Iron Man. Tauke. Nā mihi ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki, me ngā kai rā wiki wiki, mihini anō. Aida, have a safe labour weekend day, be careful on the roads. Go the All Blacks. Ai, kia kaha. Mai te whanau a te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa, Māori ora. ora.